Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Greg Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio, and I'm your host, Craig Settles. I want to welcome everyone in the audience today, and thank you for taking time to be with us. We're here uh, to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Now, one of the more challenging efforts at getting broadband into difficult places is, um, I would say, the, the, the Wired West project in Massachusetts. And the reason I say it's one of the more challenging is that because this project brings together about 47 communities, which are towns and townships, most with their own you know, governing bodies and so forth, and bring these communities together to develop and execute a single broadband deployment plan. So if you can imagine that, um, you know, because once you have even just eight or, or nine local governments coming together under one roof, as it were, the logistics and the politics can get pretty crazy. So here today to help us sort through um, some of these challenges that uh, Wired West has overcome and the challenges that still lie ahead is Monica Webb, who is the co-chairman of uh, Wired West. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Glad to be on. And so tell us, what inspired you to to begin this long march to what maybe some of those communities view as broadband freedom? Well, my personal journey started when uh, we were actually building a new a new home, and I wanted to build a green home, and of course, at that time, we're talking 2004, all of the information that to be gathered was really on the Internet, and I was doing it on dial-up, and I was just increasingly frustrated with that service, and there was uh, there was no other option open to me except satellite, which I, of course, eventually gravitated to. But it was such it was such an incredibly frustrating process, and, you know, I, I live in a rural area currently, but I came from an urban area with, obviously cutting-edge broadband connectivity. So it it became very frustrating, so I became involved at my town level, um, and really our initial focus was just on trying to lobby the incumbent telcos to provide expanded DSL coverage. When we realized that wasn't going to work, we then banded together with um, other towns in the region. We created an 11-town regional consortium. We thought we would have more power with the incumbents, at that point realized we wouldn't, and really through about, a, I would say, a two- to three-year working process realized that the only way that we were going to make this happen and make it happen in a way that was going to truly enable economic development and improve our quality of life was to do it ourselves. So, you know, I've I've gone through the process from being chair of my local one-town broadband committee to chair of a regional consortium to now chair of this coalition of uh, technically it's it's we we have 24 towns that are currently signed on to the governance and we have another 18 towns that are in the process of working through the voting process which is onerous in and of itself so we expect to have somewhere around 42 towns uh, by mid middle of next summer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> how accurate is it, are these claims that we hear that, you know, most of America is covered by broadband, there's only, oh, I don't know, 10% left to go, I mean, depending on who you talk to and all the rest of it. But there's this picture painted that 
well, broadband should actually be there for for most folks. I mean, but but what's the reality on the ground? Well, the reality for for our towns, for our region, which I can really only speak to statistically accurately, is uh, you know we we have about forty seven towns in western Massachusetts that have probably on average I would say thirty five percent of the of the households are covered for broadband. Mm-hmm. The other sixty five percent have only options of dial up and in some cases satellite, which you know as we know is not not future proof connectivity, certainly not appropriate for gaming not not appropriate to drive economic development so we're talking about sixty five percent of you know our, our hilltown population with no access to appropriate broadband, and those that do have access you know as you know it's cherry picking it's the incumbent telco where the cable company will go into the center of town and reach people that are least cost prohibitive to reach as opposed to serving everybody. So it's, you know, and and we we live in an area where we're two hours from Boston, we're two hours from New York City. We have a lot of people that have migrated out of the cities, either on a part-time basis, they may just have second homes here, uh, or on a full-time basis. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, we have a lot of people that uh, are very technologically savvy, who are looking for a better technology. So we have a combination of unmet need, where you have 65% of the population who does, who just cannot get access, and then you also have this hunger for for that connectivity. So you know we we really pulled those two factors together, and that's what's driving the. Uh, that's what's driving the movement to build our own fiber optic network. So when you approached the incumbents in the um, – actually, let me back up for a second. Oh, last week, um, <clears throat> one of my guests was a, uh analyst, and we talked about um, the, the new USF reform. And one of the statistics that came out of it was that of the – um, I guess 18% of the U.S. that's not covered, 85% of that li- resides in or rests in an area that is um, supposedly covered or at least on paper is served by the incumbents, Verizon, AT&T, and so forth. Is that pretty much what we're what you're dealing with? So when you say you go to the incumbents, it's because the like the Verizon or Verizon and Whatever company has a a presence in your area, though they don't serve everyone in your area. Yes, Verizon is our incumbent telco, and I think one of the issues with the broadband mapping in terms of who has service and who doesn't is that certainly I can speak for our area is that the areas served by wireless by by uh, mobile wireless were greatly embellished in the mapping process. Hmm. Um, you know, and and we don't really we don't see the the existing mobile wireless infrastructure that we even have in this area as as being a future proof uh, future proof method for providing internet access for a variety of reasons. You know, we don't have 4G yet anyway, but regardless of that, we don't see that as the, as as the ultimate answer. But when I looked at these maps, there were some towns that said they were completely covered by wireless, and you can ask anyone from those towns, and they'll tell you they don't get mobile wireless signals there. So I think that also impacted the you know who is served and who isn't. 
And also you run into this whole idea of what do you define as an appropriate level of service? Do you define it as something that may be appropriate for a small business today? Or do you define it as something that is going to truly engage all levels of business going forward? And that's what that's how we look at it. That's the lens that, that Wired West and our constituents look at this is we're not trying to plan a highway for yesterday's traffic flows. We're trying to plan a highway that is going to see us into the future and be a long-term uh, economic generator. Now, in terms of the USF, uh, you know, we, we had some concerns about that legislation because around the proposed reforms because they seem to favor the incumbent telcos in terms of, you know, who can provide what kind of coverage. So we'll continue to monitor that closely going forward, um, you know, obviously being a community-driven, locally managed project, we would like to see um, an equal playing field in terms of access to USF funds as a large incumbent who may not, who, you know, has their shareholders' interests in mind, not the community's best interests in mind. Mm -hmm. So now, <clears throat> when you approach the incumbents, what did you approach them with in terms of what were you asking for and what was their response? Well, this is going back. This is going back to the mid to the sort of the, the 2004 to 2006 and seven era, and you know, essentially, we got the name of the the local person in the Verizon office, and we just called them repeatedly. We tried, you know, we tried all different approaches, uh, you know, begging, cajoling, threatening, uh, you know, to go to other wireless providers, et cetera, and they basically just said they they didn't care. Um, they were not going to expand service. We tried legislative pressure, and that that worked to to somewhat expand service. But really, the net result was was there were several towns that had no service, so they went in and provided, you know, thirty percent of the population service. Which, you know, from looking at it from an overall perspective of trying to serve as many customers in a rural area as you can, for someone to come in and cherry-pick 30% of the most profitable customers, uh, you know, hurts the business model for an entity that might want to come in and serve everybody. So, uh, you know, our our efforts, uh, you know, and, and I can't even say that our individual town or collective town efforts had any impact. I think really there was some legislative pressure that led to increasing the level of of DSL service in the area uh among you know basically not not increasing it in towns that already had it but just you know creating a footprint in each town didn't solve our problem you know it's it just that fewer people were fewer you know uh, there were a few more people that were uh th that that were suddenly satisfied although now we're getting a lot of complaints about the DSL service in the region so now it's expanded from the wireless dissatisfaction with wireless to dissatisfaction with cable. Yes. Yeah, dissatisfaction with all of those. You know, we see less dis less dissatisfaction with the cable providers, although you know it's Time Warner and Comcast in our area. We see less dissatisfaction with with the services that they are providing to residents and small businesses. We see a lot of dissatisfaction with wireless and DSL. 
Uh, now, the larger businesses, the medium to large size businesses, or any business, frankly, that uses a lot of bandwidth is still not satisfied with the cable offerings. Huh. I find this interesting. You know, we, we seem to, um, one of my <clears throat> pet peeves over the last couple of years has been I feel that the policymakers at the state capital levels and in Washington do not adequately listen to the people from the communities that have the pain because there's such there's always this contrast between the sort of head in the sand kinds of comments you get from people in Washington versus what what seems to be happening <clears throat> when you talk to people such as yourself and and your your colleagues and people that are that are fighting the same fight you know tell a very different reality as opposed to what is the the soundbite norm coming out of D.C. I mean, do you think that's fairly adequate that there is a disconnect between policymakers and 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 the people that own the pain? I think that's entirely accurate. Uh, we we have had that experience here in Massachusetts. Uh, we have had that experience, certainly seeing what's going on at the federal policy level as well. Um, it's more acute at the state level for us because we do have uh, we do have the Massachusetts Broadband Institute, which was um, granted by the state legislature the ability to raise up to forty million dollars in bonds to help with the broadband inequity issue, which primarily existed in Western Massachusetts. Although there were some outlying areas in the Cape and Martha's Vineyard that also needed some attention, and they then leveraged that money to get federal funding from the stimulus package and ended up with close to $75 million in total to help solve the problem. But there has been ongoing friction between the state and between, in particular, Wired West. And from our perspective, we look at it that, we look at it as all of our towns chose this solution. They voted twice that vote had to pass with a two-thirds majority, and that though in most towns it was passed unanimously. We see that as uh, very powerful and compelling community support for a fiber optic network as our last mile solution. Mm-hmm. And yet we continually struggle with the state enabling other types of solutions in our region and, you know, treating us like any other provider when we are the only provider that is pledging to reach everybody that wants service. We're the only provider that is pledging to do it in a way that uh, is going to be future-proof and that is, that is going to truly enable economic development. And we're the only provider that is that the communities have chosen. And we believe that that is really... Uh, that's really a a compelling value proposition and that we deserve uh, a different level of consideration from the state in terms of what we're trying to achieve. So you mean more support? We we believe that we do do, uh, deserve more support. Now, you know, I'm not saying that it's being it, – we, we have received two grants from the Massachusetts Broadband Institute, which have greatly enabled the work that we are trying to do. Uh, we have had working discussions with them, ongoing working discussions with them that have been very productive. Uh, but that these, these frictions do continue to arise, 
and I'm I'm not speaking on behalf of myself. Uh, I am speaking on behalf of our delegates that represent our towns. And at the last two delegate meetings we've had, it has come across loud and clear that our constituent towns want that message to be delivered to the Massachusetts Broadband Institute, to the governor, and to our legislators that this is the solution that we're that that we're choosing and we expect the state to work as hard as they can to support the communities that have chosen that solution. Right. So it's basically uh, the again the issue that the people that own the problem have come up with a solution for the problem to move forward and improve the local condition. And exactly. and what what needs to happen is that our politicians, uh elected leaders need to recognize, in essence, the will of the people. I mean, that's ultimately yes. what this comes down to. It precisely. It precisely. And, I, you know, it's. I talk to other communities that are going through this process, and some of them have had similar experiences as we have. But others, you know, the local economic development authority is 100% behind this and is, in fact, contributing to financing to enable these things. And, you know, I see that as really a, a progressive viewpoint. And I will say that 90% of our, our legislators, our state legislators, support Wired West. And, uh, but it's, it's more, you know, it, it's more the, the state agency that we need to get on board. And, and they're really spearheading the effort. You know, they're building a really robust middle mile. They're also tasked with last mile. Um, but the funding that they have is limited, and you know we're not we're not asking them to to pay for it. We're we are uh, committed to building a network that will be financially sustainable, but we are asking them to provide uh, support as much as they can, and to not enable other technologies via funding that cherry pick our area. Right, because. Why? Why? What's the purpose of that whole thing? You know, it's it's <clears throat> you know because they well, talk about I'll not tell wanting. You, the response that I was given was, we support we meaning the Massachusetts Broadband Institute. We support all efforts to expand broadband access equally. Okay. Which seems like then <clears throat> you guys should be on fair footing with everybody else that's receiving money and support and so forth. I would say we're on fair footing. We we have received financial support. Uh the the issue is when when other entities are enabled to cherry pick our you know in the Massachusetts Broadband Institute is building on 124 towns in western Massachusetts. Wired West is 42 of those towns. So it we do not want other te- technologies enabled to cherry pick our towns using s- state funding, using taxpayer funding, ah, so it's cherry a, picking. That's so the issue. It's an interesting argument because basically what it's saying is that um, you know there's a there's a group of folks who say you know government money should not be used to fund competition, but in this particular case, it sounds like government money is indeed funding competition, and not only is it funding competition, it's funding competition against a local, developed, community-supported broadband solution. That will serve everybody. And what we've said is if you, if somebody else wants to come in, a private company wants to come in and build a fiber optic network to everybody, that's great. We can go home. 
But that's not; those aren't the solutions that we're seeing for obvious reasons. There, there isn't the, you know, there just isn't the, um, the same return on capital for the private sector building a, a fiber network in a rural area. Uh, it's not the same business model as when you do it on a municipal basis, and you don't have to have that profit margin included in your business model, and you can borrow money on a lower cost basis. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So now. <clears throat> Stepping back and kind of looking at the beginning of the process, what were the pros and cons of moving forward the way that you moved forward? In other words, you know, you, you were starting as an independent kind of, we're not happy with this, this doesn't make sense, we need to change. And so you look up one day and say, okay, well, then the solution is we need to band together. And you and I have talked about this, and I've really even written about Wired West and how you had to take the existing laws and figure out how to form a structure and all of the rest of it. So you look at the you know you look over the paraphrase at the at all of the stuff that has to be done. What were the pros and cons behind the you know do we go do we not discussion? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that you know we, we had a number of informal meetings. As I mentioned, uh, pretty much every town that was unserved or underserved by broadband had broadband committees. So we we a group of I think there were about ten of us that that had really been leading this this movement, put the word out to all of the unserved and underserved towns that we were going to have a meeting and talk about where we could go. And we brought in Tim Nolte from EC Fiber to talk about, you know, what a fiber network could do for rural communities. And we had that meeting, and we were, I would say, overwhelmed by the support all of these communities were on board. It was it was sort of like you know there were there were about ten of us that said what about this idea, and suddenly fifty towns close to fifty towns said absolutely we've got to do this, you know we're behind this this concept. What do we need to do to make it work? And we you know so we went from there. So it was should we do this? The towns overwhelmingly said absolutely we should do this. You know given certain parameters, uh, we can't create a white elephant that is going to be a, a, any kind of tax drain on the municipalities. Uh, you know, we have to be very careful about the costs and how we're doing this. Um, you know, and, and that is one thing we have been, uh, throughout the process, very, very cognizant of is is managing the capital costs and managing the the projected well the projected capital costs and the projected operational costs. So once we we had that support um and we were you know we were also able to get a number of local grants in addition to the Massachusetts Broadband Institute we received some local grants from regional planning agencies and that enabled us to look at the potential governance structures which you just mentioned. There were three things, three core things we were looking for. We were looking for um, some kind of governance structure that would enable all of these towns to work together cooperatively. We were looking for a governance structure that would enable us to raise money, uh, preferably on a, a low-cost basis. And thirdly, we wanted, we were, we preferred to find legislation that was existing. And we were incredibly fortunate that this legislation that was created in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in the state of Massachusetts to enable towns to create their own electric companies existed and was amended in the 90s to include the ability to create telecommunications networks. 
So the legislation existed. It's um, it's it's a municipal organization, so you can raise money issuing municipal bonds. And if you form it as a cooperative, you have the governance structure for the towns to work together cooperatively. So it, out of the, I think we looked at about a dozen different potential structures, you know, including nonprofit structure, various nonprofit structures, et cetera. And this one very clearly was the winner because we did not have to get special enabling legislation. Um, and I think you you understand in this environment, if you go to the legislature and you ask for legislation to create structure for municipal broadband networks, uh, you understand the 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 resistance that can happen from incumbent telco lobbies. So we really felt that was the best solution. And despite the fact that the voting process is onerous for our towns, as I mentioned earlier, most towns have passed it unanimously or close to unanimously. That's very uh, <clears throat> that's very interesting. I know that in the state of Colorado, um, they have a process mandated that says that a community has to have an election before they can go down the path of having their own their own network and what um, what happened there uh, which has happened in a number of other states is that the incumbents use the election they basically hijack the election process they come in big money they basically squash any idea of having a, a community driven network now, maybe it's because <clears throat> the stakes are so high in bigger communities, but <clears throat> I'm surprised you didn't run into that same kind of uh, activity there in Massachusetts. I, you know, we were surprised as well that we didn't run into it. Uh, we we really have only a couple of large communities that are very well represented with uh, the cable companies and the telcos, 100% service. So. You know, it's, it's perhaps because most of our towns were unserved and underserved, as it was. But you know, the the there's still opportunities for them to obstruct what we're trying to do, uh, and we're cognizant of what has happened in other states and other areas. Uh, we do have uh, legislators, for the most part, and a governor that is certainly you know have expressed their willingness to um, take on any perceived efforts by the telcos to squash local broadband efforts. Mm-hmm. So well, that, I, I, that, that, that has certainly worked. Yes, I think I think that may be part of what has worked in our favor. Interesting. And then that legislative support I assume still stands pretty strong as the as the months have gone along and and so forth. Yeah, the legislative we we have support from um pretty much every every legislator, every state legislator and it has it has uh, stood by. You know, there I would say that uh, some of them were a little skeptical when we started out. One of the things that we have done is create a very strong leadership team with relevant skills to creating this network, uh, not to operating it, not to directly managing it. You know, we recognize that, you know, essentially we know what we don't know, but that are uh, talented enough to create the structure, 
to make this actually happen. And I think that's gone a long way to alleviating concerns from outside parties about creating this network because it is a, a significant and complex process to plan, uh, finance, and build a network that could cost in the you know in the neighborhood of fifty to seventy five million dollars. Right. It's, it's it's not something that your normal community organizers can take on and make happen. So we have brought in appropriate consulting expertise where necessary. We have um, we have brought in relevant people as advisors, pro bono advisors where relevant. And that's actually one thing that is so incredibly refreshing about the network of municipal fiber network operators across the United States is that they want other networks to succeed. And they are willing to spend time with you uh, for free, give you advice, review your projected financial statements. Um, All of that, we have found uh, an incredible willingness to share knowledge and share advice to to help us succeed because ultimately uh, networks that fail are a blemish for all municipal fiber networks across the country. Right. Uh, And other networks have seen how it has truly engaged their local community, how it has turned communities around from a social welfare standpoint, from an economic and financial standpoint. And they want that you know they they're encouraging that to happen in other areas of the US so i have to say i am so grateful to other municipal network operators and to also organizations and individuals um like google and calix and and other other uh, cisco other organizations that are supportive of bringing together these discussions in forums uh david eisenberg's forum all of those forums that are really incredibly helpful in bringing everyone together in one place and sharing best practices. Mm-hmm. Well, that has definitely been a um, <clears throat> I found to be a hallmark that's existed. <clears throat> excuse me for uh, a number of years in the whole community network in the community. I mean, the whole network group that has uh, has made these networks possible, and I think that's definitely one of the the, the resources that every community looking at doing one of these projects needs to consider. Now, just give us a little bit of a checklist of what needs to happen to make an effort such as this uh, successful or just getting off the ground. I mean, how do you educate people about the drive and enlist their support? And what kind of personnel structure do you create to take advantage of all those people stepping up to support the project? Right. Uh, Well, I will say that one of the you know in our area which i think is somewhat unique with you know ec fibers in a similar situation i don't know that i know other networks where we're in a, a, a large geographic region you know there western massachusetts is about 100 towns so it is a large geographic region for me to drive from one corner diagonally to the other corner is going to be close to 3 hours so, you know, we were talking about spreading the word in a, a relatively large and diverse geographic community, which was a significant challenge. What we did have in our favor was the fact that these existing, there were already existing um, broadband community, broadband committees in most of these communities. 
In addition, the Massachusetts Broadband Institute had done maps of which towns were technically unserved and underserved. So we, we used that as a guide as to who to reach out to. And, you know, we, we initially had a really good group of community organizers. We contacted the select boards of the local towns to get the names and emails of people. You know, that's how we gathered everybody together for that initial meeting. So it was really about researching who were the people that were that were driving this discussion in their local communities. And in the event that there were not people driving the discussion, you know, who who were the select board members we could contact. So we really started out with, you know, very grassroots finding out who the who the right people were to talk to and then gathering them all together and creating a, a you know, we'll, we'll call it a grassroots community network, which was really simply email. It was creating a website that provided all of the relevant background information. It was holding regular community meetings leading up to uh, – we actually – I talked about the two votes required to pass the legislation – in each town to join Wired West. Well, a year ago, we also were on the town warrants for all of the annual town meetings, and it was really just an expression of interest in from the constituents to join the discussions of Wired West. And that, again, was passed uh, unanimously or close to unanimously in every town. And so that really enabled the select boards to engage with us. It enabled the community, the representatives in each community to engage with us. Um, it enabled us to get to apply for local funding. Uh, you know, there, we have a lot of uh, important partnerships locally with our regional planning agencies, with, um, you know, the Hilltown CDC, which is our local economic development, uh, community development agency, they have served as our fiduciary until we were uh, technically a legal entity. So we've had a lot of great support from local entities. We've had unanimous support across the board from our communities. That's you know that's how we really started getting the effort going. But in terms of one thing that is important, which I touched on earlier, was having a good leadership team. And clearly community organizing is uh, a fundamental requirement. However, you don't want to end up with everybody that's their only skill set. So we now have somebody on board who is extremely good at managing financial statements and doing, you know, constructing financial models. We have somebody who uh, we have several people with technology background, but somebody who has actually implemented fiber networks for the railroads. Um, we have people with engineering expertise and uh, and and mapping and and a lot of the the work that we're currently doing is you know essentially mapping on GIS maps all of our utility poles all of our structures uh, using orthophotos to correct all of the roads so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of on the ground work so there there you know. And, and I, the other the other skill set is is marketing and communications. You must have that, or you know you're not going to be able to get your message across. You're not going to be able to project yourself professionally and capably. So those are those are all things that are really important when pulling together a team because certainly in the early stages these teams tend to be self-selected, and I, I think it is really important that 
if you start off with a small self-selected group, to bring in people with appropriate levels of expertise that are going to be fundamental to your success, those being financial, um, technology, specific to what you're trying to do, so fiber, optic, network expertise, um, marketing, and community organizing. So how do, <clears throat> how do you structure this from a, I don't know, a business, you know, like you have, you have a typical org chart in a structured, you know, formal business, corporate business, whatever. How do you, how, how does your org chart kind of come together when you've got a lot of volunteers, you've got people who self-selected initially, you're on the lookout for people who have expertise in very defined areas, but what does your org chart look like? How does that, how does that come together? Absolutely. So the the uh, Wired West is managed by a board of directors. The the Wired West Communications Cooperative is managed by a board of directors, and the board of directors is made up of the towns that have passed both votes, where the select board has has uh, taken a vote as well to join Wired West and has allocated the initial membership fee for joining. So there, each town has one seat on the board of directors. What we have asked each town to do is to assign a delegate and an alternate so that when votes are taken at meetings, if the de primary delegate can't make it, the alternate can function in its place. So we, we have uh, the board of directors. From the board of directors is voted in an executive committee. And that executive committee, in our case, um, can have up to nine members, and they manage the day-to-day decision-making. However, policy decisions go to the board. The board meets currently about once a month. We have also, so our, our current executive committee is six members. Um, we want, you know, we will, we will bring on additional members as we see appropriate levels of strategic thinking and expertise. Um, among our board of directors, you know, we'll, we'll invite people. It is a significant time requirement, so people have to be prepared to um, allocate. It's probably at least two days a week work, if not more for some people, and more at certain times, depending on on how um, how detailed your uh, that particular task is at the time. Um, you know, the one thing that I, I just realized I, I neglected to mention that that we have as well is legal expertise. We have somebody on our board of directors that attended the Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government, and that has been enormously helpful for us as well because you do get into situations where you need to read legal documents, you need to be able to interpret them. Of course, we do have project counsel and we do have municipal counsel that assist with that, but uh, having legal expertise in-house is a great way to save money and make sure that the, um, the, the cooperative's interests are, are protected. Um, so we have the board of directors, the executive committee. We've also instituted uh, an ad hoc advisory council. And the members of the advisory council are people that can help both from a standpoint of advising us on issues of technology, issues of finance, issues of fundraising, um, who can provide legislative credibility. So currently we have about six members of the advisory council and we're adding members that the advisory council doesn't meet as a group. They will be advising either one-on-one uh, -on -one with members of the executive committee or advising the committee as a whole. Uh, so that is really that is our current governance structure. 
uh, our, our current org chart, shall we say, uh, when we get to the appropriate time where we are ready for financing, that's when we will be looking at hiring a general manager. And then from there, you know, once financed, then you will be looking at a full-time staff org chart. Mm-hmm. So now you have a, you have 42 communities that have come together. Uh, clearly there is desire for the project. Uh, you have an organization structure that allows input from everyone. But at a certain point, do you run into the worry that, you know, one group of communities might want to do X with their broadband, and another group might want to do Y, and someone else might want to do Z, and that their goals might at some point become conflicting goals in terms of what has to be developed as a technology in order to meet those various needs. Do you anticipate that? Do you encounter that? And how would you resolve it if you did? Well, the first thing I'll say is that uh, there there. You know, there hasn't been a question from any of the communities that this is the technology they want um, is, is fiber optic. So I, I don't, you know, there may be, uh, there, there are some communities that have opted not to join because they would like to go with a solution that is going to be uh, faster to deploy. It may not be more long-term, but it's faster to deploy. So I would say that, that uh, there is a very there is a vision. It has been consensus driven, and you know that there is at this point there hasn't been any questioning that that we should be going down a different road. Now, you know, when it comes to technology, it's it's certainly plausible, and our our board of directors certainly appreciate that if you have somebody who is down the road three miles beyond the last home, it may not be feasible initially to to reach those people via fiber. And if we can do it via wireless, then then we may have to do that initially and find a way to eventually get fiber to them um, as, a, as, as a second phase or, or perhaps as, um, you know, create some kind of fund for those types of scenarios. The one... The one caveat I would say to that is, you know, I, I look at my own road, for example, and there are people towards the end of the road that are going to be expensive to reach. However, it's it's hilly, windy, and wooded, so I'm not really certain that that wireless would would be appropriate either. So there are, you know, we're going to have to make some decisions um, about, you know, last mile technology and, and who we can really feasibly reach without breaking the model, but that we are committed to reaching everyone in the long term and that we we need to find, uh, if it's a fundraising mechanism, if it's, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the network goes into the black, if it's, if it's a fund, you know, if, if, if those profits go into um, a fund that funds you know the the ex- more expensive last mile. We're committed to doing it, but we may not feasibly be able to do it initially. Now, how we would handle um, any any sort of uh, desire to do something different than the plan going forward? You know, I think that will have to be handled on a case by case basis. As I mentioned, policy decisions like that do need to come. In, to the board for decision. Now, typically, the executive committee will discuss them ahead of time 
We will present the information that we have learned to the board. If there seems to be one that has clear advantages, we may recommend it. Um, but by no means are you know, we telling the board what must be done with policy. That is, that is something that has been, um, it will be discussed at the board level. And I, I will tell you, we, you know, there have been issues thus far, none necessarily that serious, but we, we have had issues thus far, and we have hashed it out at the board level. We have, in some cases, assigned a working group to resolve the issue and come up with recommendations, and it has worked phenomenally well thus far. Mm -hmm. I will also say we do have a uh, a person who is uh, an international management consultant who specializes in, uh, shall we say, delineating roles between board, between staff, between executive committee, and facilitating that interaction that is interested in working with our group to ensure that we we uh you know set the path the right way to start and that when we, that if and when we encounter problems that uh he will help us through it. Mhm. I do <clears throat> I do find it interesting that some communities would opt to not join because they wanted a faster solution um from somewhat from the standpoint of even if I decide that I want to have a wireless solution as a community I still have to have a, a wired connection. I cannot get to one <clears throat> without the other. And it seems like they would still want to be part of the effort um, because they would take advantage of whatever fiber that you bring to the area. You know, I would say that there is only one one of our towns I can think of that is in that situation. And I... Uh, Without being, you know, living in that town and being immersed in it, I would say that a lot of it has to do with personalities and politics. Mm, there's always um, that. Uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, truly under, you know, truly enabling a future-proof solution. So I, I will put that down to personalities and politics. There are a few other towns that I think there are maybe three or f- three towns that haven't proceeded with Wired West uh, primarily because they just don't have a local advocate that is that is pushing it. And, you know, perhaps enough people in the town have service that, you know, the, the people that don't aren't vocal about it. You know, as I mentioned, I'm not in those towns, but my impression is that the towns that are not pushing for it, the, you know, the handful, uh, as I mentioned, I think there may be three they just don't have somebody ushering the process. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, we have other towns that are are really pushing to be part of Wired West that were not part of the initial 47. One of them we recently approved, the town of Tolland, which is a new town. We, we recently approved them joining Wired West, and they uh, have put the first vote on their town warrant, they're having a special meeting to to attend to the first vote. We have had probably six or seven towns over the years ask if they could join, uh, over the years, over the last year, ask if they could also join. So we're going back to those towns and, and just saying, um, you know, if, you, if you're really serious about it, then, then come talk to us. Uh, one thing we do need to be careful of is 
some of those towns are fully served by incumbents. We want to minimize the, uh, you know, any any kind of issues with towns that are fully served by incumbent providers. So it's a bit of a balance there in terms of what towns can join Wired West. Technically, our policy is that the entire board of directors has to approve any new towns that were not part of the initial charter towns. Mm -hmm. So Tolland was just granted that approval. Um, there's another, you know, there there are other towns that are are looking for that. So. You know that that's basically where our our uh, our town count is at. Very interesting. So there's a um, so you 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 basically have to keep the big picture uh, in focus. You have to have a uh, group that's representative of the all of the communities engaged, and you need to have some one local person who's the <clears throat> the main driver yes. to kind of keep everybody um, focused on what you on what you guys are doing. Well, you know, we, we, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, we have this. You know, it's it's a a town by town communications model. Every town has a a delegate and an alternate, and that delegate and alternate are responsible for updating the select board. They're responsible for updating their towns via newsletter, via website, however the town disseminates news to their citizens. Um, they're responsible for bringing concerns from their town to Wired West. So we we have, um, you know, they were the, they were, it was, it was town delegates and alternates that prior to any of these votes did presentations in each town to educate people about what Wired West was about and what the legislation uh, would require, would require of their towns. So we, when there is somebody in the town who is uh, engaged in this process, it makes a significant difference to the town. And you know, clearly, in the vast, vast majority of our towns, there are there's at least one person, um, if not more, that really want to see this happen. You know, in my own town, we have I, I'm the primary delegate. We have an alternate, but we have a number of other people who are committed to getting the word out and and are extremely supportive of the of Wired West and making this happen. Mm -hmm. So, in general amounts, what does it cost to get this thing moving forward? Not the broadband project itself, but getting the actual organization structured and 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 moving in, in a forward direction. And and where does that money come from? We're estimating uh, that it's it, you know I would estimate it it probably costs to get something like this off the ground in the neighborhood of two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars and that is for you know all of your legal advice that you will need that is for research that is consulting fees uh, it is for um, the marketing and communication support that you you know you can't get from in-kind services um, it's for uh, Bringing, you know, getting people to uh, the financial team together that will structure the bond offering. Now, where that money comes from, in our case, we have been fortunate that we have had uh, we've had two grants from the Massachusetts Broadband Institute totaling hundred thousand dollars. We have had grants from some local organizations and local businesses. That uh, that totaled somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty five thousand dollars. 
we have had significant donations of in-kind services, web hosting, constant contact, um, uh, GPS units to assist with the mapping. We've had, as I mentioned, some you know pro bono legal advice from somebody in our, our legal team. We've uh, we, we've had so much of it donated via in-kind services that um, it, which has been wonderful. But it still does leave a chunk of money that we have to raise uh, via fundraising, probably in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand dollars that we will have to raise via fundraising and via grants. Mm. So. We have applied for um, we've applied for a few grants, and we're continuing to apply for grants to help us along in the process. We are um, approaching businesses and individuals to assist us with this that we see as a position to greatly benefit from this kind of network. Um, we don't we don't anticipate that we'll have a problem raising that money, but um, the money does need to be raised. And in our situation, um, you know, we've had certain resources in other states. There are other resources that have been really helpful in Virginia. They they utilized an, um, some of the, the money that came from the state tobacco payments. They, uh, in other states, they've, a lot of states' economic development authorities have put funding into this. In some areas where it's a specific municipality, the municipality has authorized uh, funding to go towards this. Um, there are, you know, there there are federal economic development grants that are available. Um, various different communities qualify for certain types of funding, both both regional, by at a state level and at a at a federal level. So really, uh, a good part of the research that has to be done is, what are these grants and can we utilize them? Um, clearly, the USDA does grants and loans for broadband funding. They have certain criteria that you have to meet. Currently, we don't believe that our towns in western Massachusetts will meet some of those criteria because of the uh, the local level, uh, the average income level here. Uh, but they also do loan guarantee programs. Um, there are a plethora of, of sources available it's it's really finding out what those sources are and whether or not those sources are supportive of of what you're doing based on their mandate um and based on just local politics interesting so now <clears throat> one of the issues i'd like to cover we got about 5 minutes is um for other communities we have clearly a lot of middle mile projects involving hundreds of miles of fiber each project. And that's good because that was a huge expense that somebody had to address. Cummins weren't building because of the expense of building out the, the, the backhaul, the, the, the middle mile stuff. But now that you have the middle mile networks being built, don't you still have the issue of, well, who's going to drive and fund the last mile? Because, like, you know, taking Massachusetts as an example, all that middle mile build out doesn't matter <clears throat> if there aren't projects like Wired West. But at the local level, you know, you still have incumbents saying, well, I don't want to spend money in this locality or that locality for the same reason I didn't want to spend money for middle mile. Does this call, does this sort of justify why communities need 
to undertake projects like Wired West or, 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 or approaches like Wired West has done? Communities really, if communities want to have, uh, you know, the the 21st century productivity tool available to their small businesses and large businesses, you know, if they want to improve the quality of life, they need to take the initiative to make this happen. You know, the middle mile projects, while certainly, you know, when you look at the inventory of fiber in the country, um, certainly it was advantageous to expand the middle mile. Uh, however, certainly my personal view is that that money would have better, been better spent on either an integrated middle mile, last mile solution, or specifically last mile. I think that if you had built out last mile fiber networks, many of the existing long haul networks um, or existing middle mile networks would have um, you know, would have met the last mile networks and provided connectivity at their cost. Certainly that's not true in all cases. I think that's true in in, in a number of cases that that probably spending more money, you, you would probably get more actual connectivity and more bang for your buck spending money on last mile as opposed to middle mile. However, um, you know, the Massachusetts Broadband Institute is creating a middle mile, an incredibly robust middle mile network that is going to serve our region for decades and decades to come. Um, so it is a an asset that you know we have to be grateful for, and certainly they have taken on some of the capital costs that we would have had to do interconnecting our various towns and connecting our network to the World Wide Web. Um, so I would I would really say that if communities want a fiber to the home network to happen unless you are a you know a really densely populated community it's going to be difficult to get uh, a private company to come in and do a fiber to the home network there are some exceptions to the rule you know we have fiberlink in albuquerque we have certainly verizon fios in some some areas and uh, we have even some cable companies building out fiber to the home in some areas but those tend to be you know, very densely populated, or perhaps there's, you know, perhaps you have, in, in the case of, in in Albuquerque, a very forward-thinking private network operator. Uh, so I would say yes, communities, if you want this to happen, you have to take it on yourself, and it is a momentous task, but it really is going to have a significant long-term payoff for your community in terms of positioning you. Uh, in a difficult economic time, it's going to be positioning you to recover faster from other communities. It's going to position your community for long-term economic development and also significant quality of life improvements from better health care to better educational opportunities uh, to better access to government services. It really, um, it really is the, the productivity and social welfare tool of the 21st century. Well, great. And on that note, <clears throat> it's going to be time for us to call it a day. But I want to thank you, Monica, for another great interview. I appreciate always hearing about what Wired West is up to, and I wish you guys the best of luck as you move this project forward. Thank you very so, much, Craig. Appreciate and it. And hopefully, hopefully we'll get you back on the show 
as things get really moving there and 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 um people start getting connected and we'll get more more progress reports from from what's going on um thank you everyone in the audience for listening uh, being here today this week we have uh, FCC commissioner uh, Cops, probably one of his last interviews for, as a member of the FCC. Uh, you definitely want to catch that on Wednesday. Thank you very much and have a great day.